Welcome to the official Ronnie Landis podcast show, where you learn to upgrade the human experience through natural nutrition, lifestyle design, and consciousness engineering. This is no ordinary health or personal growth podcast, and Ronnie Landis is definitely no ordinary host. Ronnie Landis is an integrative nutritionist, transformation coach, and human behavioral specialist. He brings on some of the world's leading thought leaders to deliver to you the most cutting-edge information and unique perspectives so you can create the life of your dreams. Get ready to receive your upgrade in all you believed was possible, starting now. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the official Ronnie Landis podcast show. Of course, I am your host, Ronnie Landis. And it is always an honor for me to bring on another jam-packed, inspirational, and transformative interview with one of the world's top leaders in whatever particular field or focus that we are engaging in. And today's episode, I have to say, is one of the most important conversations going on in the stratosphere of consciousness And it's with an individual that I believe is one of the most confirming voices in the realms of quantum physics as reality, in the realms of the the universe being appearing to act more like a hologram than being this dense three-dimensional brick-and-mortar type of reality, and really, really giving a voice to the spiritual nature of reality. And the only way that I could really make such an affirmative statement is by giving the context of this individual's experience. You see, the individual that we are bringing on today, his name is Dr. Eben Alexander. You may have heard of Dr. Alexander. He's been all over Oprah. He's been on Dr. Oz. He's been all over some of the major media um, platforms and definitely all over the internet, he wrote the best-selling book, Proof of Heaven. And this is how I first found out about him. And then I found out, I found a conversation between him and a man named George Nori, who used to run, I think he still does, is the main voice for one of the most well-listened to radio shows, Coast to Coast, on paranormal activities and paranormal phenomenology is one of my side obsessions. It has been for the last 15 years. So I'm always looking at like UFOlogy and interdimensional beings and, 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 uh, you know, all kinds of things having to do with our earth and the history of the earth and, and paranormal activities and all this kind of stuff. I've been really fascinated with that particular conversation for most of my life. And I've had interesting experiences from beings beyond the veil that have confirmed to me that it is real. And what we consider this tactile, physical world that we live in is a pale approximation compared to what's really going on behind the veil. And so Dr. Evan Alexander's story is so powerful because He was a hardcore neurosurgeon scientist. He basically says that material science was his religion of choice before he had a neocortex-destroying bacterial infection. So he had a type of bacterial infection, a bacteria meningitis infection, 
which basically ate away at his neocortex in his brain, which is largely responsible for cognitive function, short-term memory, um, you know, different functionalities of our brain, our motor function, our, our cognitive awareness, all this kind of thing. And without going into a long story, because we dive into his story in more detail, not only was it a miracle that he even survived, not only was it a miracle that he came back into full functionality, regained all of his faculties, what is really a miracle is what he brought back with him from beyond the other side, because he actually had had a, a very incredible experience that he calls nothing short of an odyssey, where he vividly remembered his incredible experience of going beyond physical physical consciousness. This may be what a lot of us consider as going into the light when we have a near-death experience. There's always this commonality of different events that occur for people, which Dr. Alexander kind of details for us. And he, he compiled his experiences and put them into a book called Proof of Heaven. Now, I'm not going to go into any more detail about his story or the content of this interview here. I just wanted to set it up for you guys because this conversation was truly incredible, truly, truly, um, it was just amazing. I had butterflies going through me as we were talking and he would hit certain things and it would just like, it would just come alive inside of me. And it was, it was really profound. I've been studying his work for, for a while now, and I'm just so inspired by it. And, um, I know you will be too. So I just also want to say that when recording this, I think on his end, there was a little bit of friction in our connection, internet connection as we were recording. So I do apologize for a little bit of the background static. It was unavoidable. I tried to clean that up as much as I could. However, this is such an incredible conversation that I hope that that does not infringe upon you listening to this from start to finish because this interview is something else altogether. So without further ado, enjoy this profound exploration in consciousness between myself and Dr. Eben Alexander. Dr. Alexander, a renowned academic neurosurgeon, spent 54 years honing his scientific worldview. He thought he knew how the brain and mind worked, a transcendental near-death experience in which he was driven to the brink of death and spent a week deep in coma from an inexplicable brain infection changed all of that completely. He was shocked to find the hyper-reality of that spiritual realm which many had reported as NDEs or near-death experiences. He has spent the last two and a half years reconciling his rich spiritual experience with contemporary physics and cosmology. His spiritual experience is totally consistent with the leading edges of scientific understanding today. And wow, oh, wow, there is so much more going on here, and I'm just so excited to have Dr. Eben Alexander with us. How are you doing? Thanks. 
Thanks, Ronnie. It's great to be here. Mm, I can only imagine. <laughs> I've I've uh, I've studied your work over the last six months. Uh, I was first introduced through a conversation between you and George Nori on the okay. Beyond Belief show on Gaim Network, and I I had kind of heard about your book Proof of Heaven just through the grapevine, but I never really took into it. And then I heard that conversation. I was like, oh, that's what this is about. And I went down the rabbit hole ever since. Well, good. Yes, it is uh, definitely an interesting journey that we're on. And it's really all based in kind of the deeper understanding of the phenomenon of consciousness and the relationship of brain and mind. That's where the scientific discussion is now over all of this. And it gets into some very interesting territory indeed. Yeah, and a conversation like this is, for me, as someone who's done over a 100 interviews, this type of conversation, first of all, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, but I this one is going to be, I want to just kind of preface for the entire audience, there's going to be a lot of people that are already familiar with your work. There's a lot of people that were excited that we were going to do this. And then there's going to be some people that, that are unfamiliar. So for for everybody, I want to just kind of give, um, maybe give uh, uh, an abbreviated background of your story. How did you get to this place? And um, from there, we'll dive into some of this this other territory that I want to go into with you. Okay. Well, I think it's important to point out that um, uh, I grew up in a neurosurgical home. My father uh, had been a combat surgeon in the Second World War. He came back to head up a neurosurgical training program, which he ran for several decades. Uh, he became a world leader in, uh, in neurosurgery and helped develop a lot of new modalities and all. Uh, but he was also very religious. He'd grown up um, the son of a general surgeon who had taken him to the Presbyterian Church every Sunday of his uh, youthful life. Uh, and my dad uh, fully believed in the reality of God and the power of prayer, and that uh, uh, this is all about love and healing. And uh, so for him as a neurosurgeon, there was never any conflict at all between his scientific understanding and his religious beliefs. Now, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And like many of us of that era, uh, I came to know early on that science is absolutely the pathway to truth. Now, I promise you, I'm much more of a scientist now than I've ever been. Mm -hmm. But I also came to realize that the science that I had worshipped before my coma, and I don't use that term lightly, uh, but this uh, kind of conventional version of what we call reductive materialism, you know, that only the material stuff of the universe exists, and if you break all the material world down to its tiniest little pieces and understand how they work, uh, you know, that, that would be subatomic particles and photons and all that, then you can understand all of the nature of the workings of reality. I now realize that my worldview was way too limited before, that there's far more to this universe than the physical. In fact, the physical is really the most illusory part of this world. Uh, and that's where all of the science in terms of brain, mind, and consciousness is headed, is realizing we have a far grander universe to explain, and not the simplistic little material world that was the target of you know four centuries of the rise of the natural sciences uh, over the last 400 years, just trying to seek the rules governing the 
the laws that affect uh, the material world. Um, and we were always trying to separate ourselves from it, that is, see the human as the observing scientific mind. And, of course, quantum physics over the last 115 years has shown us very carefully that um, we cannot really separate ourselves from the universe. Um, the very act of trying to do that introduces a lot of distortion and confusion. Uh, mind is inherently part of this universe, and that's what quantum physics has been trying to teach us for 115 years, and only now uh, is the scientific world finally beginning to awaken to some of the deepest truths that are pushed upon us by the findings of quantum experiments. But they have everything to do with the nature of consciousness itself and coming to understand that consciousness is fundamental in the universe, that all of this reality emerges out of consciousness itself. Uh, and to realize that the, the material realm, as it's presented to us as some kind of external structure, uh, is not that at all. It's uh, actually an information substrate uh, that is here to serve as a stage on which this beautiful drama of human experience unfolds. But we cannot consider ourselves separate from the universe in any way because that leads to a tremendous amount of confusion and distortion. Mm -hmm. And so this has really been an awakening uh, on my part uh, to a much richer version of, of how to look at reality. And that's where see all of the scientific world going now and every bit of it is over the phenomenon of consciousness and a deeper unraveling of the mind-body connection. Mm. That's that really beautifully put. And so you had, you had a very specific type of infection, um, a bacterial meningitis of your neocortex, correct? Correct. And uh, that is why I'm often asked to speak to medical and surgical groups is because such an illness, especially given the medical details of my case, basically being driven into coma within three hours of symptom onset and staying deep in coma for a week uh, with this kind of illness. I mean, doctors who take care of such patients will tell you by day two or three, such patients are all either starting to wake up or they're dead. So it was a real shocker to my physicians that I was still kind of hanging in limbo there uh, with a beating heart, but neurologic exams and scans did tremendous damage to my brain. Um, and that's why at the end of that week, uh, my doctor said I had gone from a 10% chance of survival down to a 2% chance of survival. And even if I were in that lucky 2%, what that really meant was just spending uh, a month or so in the hospital, then be transferred to a nursing home in a coma where I had finally succumbed to the illness months later. So that's why on day seven of coma, my doctors recommended that they just stop my antibiotics. That's what they recommended to the family. And it was a few hours after that that I started coming back to this world. But when I did, my doctors were absolutely right. My brain was savaged by this uh, illness. Uh, I had no memories of Evan Alexander's life. In fact, when I first came back to this world, I had no words or language. Uh, um, no memories at all uh, of my life before coma. In fact, my mother, sister, his sons, and loved, beloved family and friends at the bedside, I had no idea who these beings were. All I knew was where I had just been on this extraordinary odyssey that uh, my doctors kept telling me could not have happened given the damage to my brain. And, of course, that is what has driven me 
uh, both that miraculous recovery, because to this day, my doctors would agree that there's no uh, Western medical explanation at all for this uh, complete recovery over two months after waking up from coma. Uh, but also, of course, the deep mystery of how anything happened at all deep in the middle of my coma. I mean, the evidence was all there that my neocortex, the human part of the brain, was far too damaged. So how could I have any experience? And of course, uh, before coma, I would have proudly told you that a patient that sick could not only not have such an experience, but would not be able to remember any of it either. Because in modern neuroscience, we look at uh, conversion of short-term to long-term memory as a very... Uh, a function that's very dependent on a largely intact brain. That doesn't, that kind of memory formation doesn't happen in a really sick brain like mine was. And so the experience and the memory of it are very profound mysteries, uh, as is the recovery from it. Uh, that, of course, is what gets attention in the medical community on an ongoing basis. But I think it's important to point out that miraculous healings are not uncommon in transcendental, very deep, near-death experiences. For example, Anita Morjani, in her book, Dying to Be Me, had a stage 4B uh, lymphoma, uh, and by all doctors' accounts, should have been dead You know, in early February of 2006, when she was brought comatose into a hospital in Hong Kong, and yet she had a profound near-death experience during which she realized that she could come back to this world, but in doing so, uh, her cancer would disappear. Uh, likewise, Mary Neal, who I presented with over this weekend, no orthopedic surgeon, uh, who wrote a book about her near-death experience after being submerged underwater under a kayak for more than 30 minutes. People don't survive 30 minutes underwater and come back to have a full recovery, but Mary Neal did. Mm. So this is one of the greatest gifts of these kinds of near-death experiences is that miraculous healing is within our grasp, but it has a tremendous amount to do with realizing that all healing, all physical, mental, and emotional healing is fundamentally spiritual healing. There's so many great little aha moments that came up for me. One of the things it's, it's, um, that came up I thought was kind of amusing was this whole idea of transhumanism, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And I just thought to myself, how interesting is it going to be when all these people realize that the, I guess the Akashic records or our, our memories, our information aren't necessarily stored in our physical brain. And, right, they're uh, not stored in the <laughs> physical brain. In fact, the evidence is very strong on that. We've spent more than a century looking for a place in the brain where memories are stored, and all the evidence really seems to indicate there is no such place in the brain. Yeah. Now, there, there are critical structures, especially in the medial temporal lobes, like the hippocampus, mm. that are absolutely seem to be essential for the conversion of short-term to long-term memories. But in terms of finding any kind of locus for storage of memories in the brain, we don't find anything. And, and in fact, it's kind of amazing observation in neurosurgery that in spite of you know, millions of major brain resections over the last century, uh, we've never had to resort to some model of uh, uh, anticipating uh, specific categories of memory loss from specific resections of regions of the brain. And the reason is the brain is not the physical location of memory storage. Uh, and you're right, it is going to be quite a shock to people <laughs> in, uh, in, in this world who think that 
memories and mental states are uh, dependent completely on the brain because they're not. The brain is a reducing valve or filter mm, yes. that allows in consciousness and allows in certain patterns of conscious awareness. Uh, but that consciousness itself is is primordial and fundamental. It pre-exists the Big Bang. I mean, that consciousness of which we are all a part, of which all of uh, sentient life throughout the universe is a part, um, is the creative source of the universe. Uh, and, of course, when we encounter that, say, in a near-death experience or in a death experience, we might uh, describe that as the this uh, infinite healing power of love, of God, of some deity, uh, because we sense it as that loving force of creation. Uh, and that's what we witness. That's the empirical data of NDEs, is that a beautiful, all-loving power. Uh, but in fact, that is the oneness of our conscious awareness. And this is uh, kind of where all this is going, is a deeper understanding of how our brain serves as a filter-reducing valve that restricts and limits our consciousness down to this little illusory trickle of the apparent here and now that it does allow in. Mm. Oh, yeah, you know, what just came up for me, too, is this this um, this notion that we live in a very atheistic type of culture. And what I mean by that is this idea of division and separation from the divine in a story like yours, for me personally, and I'm sure many people around the world, which is why your books and your story become so popular, I believe, is because it's way beyond religion. It's way beyond even almost new age spirituality where it's a little even airy fairy, but you're, you know, you're coming from a, from a, you know, I think it's just interesting how, how life works to take somebody who is a neurosurgeon classically trained as you, as you have been and to provide the experience through someone like you. Um, it does provide a type of empirical um, almost omnipresent, um, uh, what's, uh, the word I'm, I'm looking for, but just this, this, this um, evidence, if you will, if we need evidence, that we don't live in an in, in atheistic, um, divineless reality. We actually live quite the opposite. Right. Well, that's a very beautiful point, uh, Ronnie. I think uh, cannot be stressed enough. I mean, the message to Proof of Heaven in the second book, The Map of Heaven, and, and this is a message that we're really amplifying in, in my third book, which I'm co-writing with my life partner, Karen Newell. Mm. That book will be out in October of 2017. That is called Living in a Mindful Universe, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness. And that will be all about this awakening that is coming to humanity, which is really the only way out, uh, whether you're looking at the scientific world or the spiritual world. Because the two of them are deeply dependent on each other. There is no way to understand uh, our current kind of version of scientific nature of reality, especially about consciousness, brain, and mind, from within the very restricted shackles and limitations of the materialist mindset. Uh, and, of course, the interesting thing is what physicists and cosmologists have been trying to tell us for decades is that our view of the physical world um, should be very much seen as the Maya, as it's put in Vedic texts, mm. that it's an illusion, that it's not as it appears. Now, this doesn't mean that this uh, material world isn't real. In fact, I would say the entire universe exists to support 
of this uh, material world in which we live. But the important thing to get is this is not all. This is not the all by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and, and this is something that, of course, we all come to know when we die, when we leave our physical bodies or when we almost die. Uh, we find out that we're actually conscious in spite of our brain. Uh, in fact, the brain is more of a prison. And uh, we're released from that prison when, when we have the death of the physical body and brain to a much higher awareness. That's what near-death experiencers have been trying to tell us for thousands of years. So it's a whole different way of looking at things. Um, to realize that the old outmoded uh, scientific, you know, production model where the brain produces consciousness uh, has never made any sense. And in fact, I would say the true open-minded skeptic, the very first thing they reject in this whole mind-body discussion, if you're looking at all the positions from pure materialism or physicalism, which is brain creates consciousness because the physical is all that exists, through all the different forms of dualism that relate brain and mind in some kind of parallel fashion, you go all the way to the other end of the spectrum to what's called metaphysical or ontological idealism, which is where only consciousness exists and completely creates all of the apparent physical realm out of consciousness. I think that's really the best position uh, to support. I mean, the true open-minded skeptic that looks at all these possibilities, yes. the first thing you throw out is the ridiculous assumption that somehow you can explain all of mental phenomenology based in the physical brain alone. That is uh, the furthest from the truth. And this is where I think the scientific world is waking up dramatically. I mean, after all, the founding fathers of quantum physics were very brilliant men. And over and over again, they have advised us that consciousness is fundamental in the universe. It's right at the heart of the measurement paradox in quantum physics is this notion that the conscious observer basically creates all that unfolds in that observed, perceived world. Uh, and so why not go all the way and, and follow their suggestion and put consciousness as fundamental and primary? I mean, you know, the, the science that I worship before my coma tried to say that the physical brain is creating consciousness out of purely physical matter. But that, as you try and follow all the dots, it becomes what is known as the hard problem of consciousness. And in fact, I would say it's an impossible problem Actually, of consciousness it doesn't from, seem to make from sense. a materialist perspective. Like just, Sorry? What, what, the way I just heard that, it doesn't even make sense to me. Like that, that, that consciousness is a byproduct of physical matter. Right. It, it doesn't make any sense. You're right. And, and yet... The thing is, there's something that Karen and I, in our third book, called The Supreme Illusion, which is the fact that somehow brain and mind are so clever at convincing us that all the out there, all the stuff out there, is actually being experienced as a mental model, a construct within mind. You're, you're, you've never experienced anything out there. What human beings experience since before they were born uh, is an internal model, it's a construct that's supposed to be similar and, and resemble something that we assume to be, quote, out there. But what the experiments in quantum physics keep proving to us is there's no such thing as an objective external physical reality. It's an information substrate uh, that we can read from and gain information from, but don't look at it as this rock-solid concrete world out there, because it's not. Uh, and, and this is where 
understanding about brain, mind, and consciousness is expanding so rapidly is to realize that, you know, our brain and body is actually part of the world out there within our mental construct. But none of it is anything more than the mental construct. It comes from pure information. And so the more we, we learn to recognize this, acknowledge this, the more we realize that as sentient beings, we have tremendous power over that perceived world. Uh, and, and this is where I think the real power of this awakening of humanity is uh, coming to fruition, is our ability to see, once we realize that, that internal construct is something completely dependent on the observant mind, we start to realize how much power we have to influence it. Mm. And that includes influencing all of reality. Yeah. This this is a great this is a great bridge to one of the topics I wanted to sh- I wanted to uh, talk to you about because I know that you, you know, it's actually the perfect segue. So this concept of the holographic universe, and I, I became aware of this through the great book by Mal- Michael Talbot, The Holographic Universe, which is largely from the work of David Bohm and, and other researchers. Right, and, Carl Prebrum. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so exactly. I, I would love for you to, to uh, I want to use that word specifically, the holographic universe, because that's basically what I'm hearing from you is what you're talking about. And, You're uh, exactly right. That's that's a very good interpretation. And to me, that book was crucial. I read The Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot, which was published in 1991. And I uh, read that book in the first few months after I came out of my coma. Mm. Uh, it had been highly recommended to me. And, and I must say, it's a beautiful work because, uh, first of all, as you point out, he starts talking about the universe as a hologram. And in that sense, uh, he's ta- talking about the uh, David Bohm's interpretation of uh, of the measurement paradox in quantum physics, um, which uh, I think is a very uh, uh, important uh, interpretation, uh, Bohmian mechanics about the explicate order and the implicate order. And uh, in that book by Michael Talbot, he goes into great detail explaining how that model works. Important thing to point out about a hologram is uh, one of the one of the uh, cardinal qualities is that the whole is reflective of each of the parts and vice versa. And that's why, for example, when you make a photographic hologram, you can cut the photographic paper into many pieces and then shine a laser light through it and get some amount of the original um, wholeness reconstructed from each of the parts. And I think this is a really important uh, concept is kind of the self-reflectivity of the whole and the parts to each other that is present in a hologram. And so he pointed out the holographic nature of the universe um, with this kind of David Bohmian uh, interpretation of quantum physics, plus some of the work of Carl Pribram about memory and about the brain. Uh, and then he starts to uh, discuss, that is Michael Talbot begins to discuss in his book Holographic Universe, how the mind is a hologram. And over over the book, you begin to realize that he's kind of slowly knitting together these concepts of the universe as a hologram and the mind as a hologram and pointing out that they're really just uh, the same hologram. And I think that's where it starts to become uh, really powerful, this kind of understanding. Uh, in many ways, this deeper understanding that I'm pointing out about the nature of consciousness, about the oneness of mind that we are all part of, that all of life 
uh, on earth and, and sentient life throughout the universe is part of this one mind. This one mind is also uh, what is experienced as that infinite power of love, of God, of some deity. Uh, when people are between lives or after they've left the, this earthly life. And so it's this one mind concept and this notion of consciousness is all that exists that then paints a beautiful picture when we realize that the boundaries of self and, and kind of the notion of the ego is something that's painted onto the consciousness, the amount of universal mind that's allowed into our consciousness in this emerging neuroscientific view of the brain as a reducing valve or filter. So the brain is not the producer of consciousness, but it's, it's a filter. This is called filter theory, uh, first brought up by the likes of William James and other brilliant thinkers uh, at the late uh, 19th and early 20th century. That would also include people like um, uh, uh, Schiller, S.E.S. Schiller, and uh, Hegel, uh, people like... Um, Oh, let's see. I guess uh, well, there's there are several others. Um, uh, the Frenchman uh, Henri uh, uh, Bergson. That's right. Uh, but there were several men who were students of the human psyche, who, especially William James, who pushed for this filter theory as something that made much more sense, that allowed this primordial consciousness into our awareness. Uh, but the interesting thing is, it looks like. Uh, our soul journeys and kind of the challenges that we uh, select to live through in these lives to serve as the mileposts for our growth, um, those are hardships and difficulties, and yet they're there as gifts. And I think this is a crucial part of understanding about our human existence, that we are here to participate in this soul school, this process of learning and teaching together. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with overcoming uh, the hardships that we've selected to face in these lives. Um, and, and this is, I think, a very important uh, kind of concept, especially as a healer, as a doctor looking at injury and illness, uh, is a, a completely di different and refreshing way I have of looking at all that. And again, this just brings up the point that all of healing, whether it be physical, mental, or emotional, is fundamentally spiritual healing at its very core. Mm. Great answer. I think that can bring up when somebody really dives into the uh, the implications of you know living in a holographic universe or living in a virtual simulation opposed to this hard three D um, kind of materialistic mechanistic universe that we have been kind of imposed upon. Right. I think it changes the way that we interpret our just day-to-day -day life because that's going to be one of the things that might come up for some people. It's like, wow, like what an amazing experience that you've had and these concepts feel very levitational. They feel very liberty, liberating and yet we still have our day-to-day -day kind of density, if you will. And I've, I've, I've interpreted your work and just your experience um, in a way that kind of liberates me from thinking that or getting stressed out on a basic on a basic just day to day level, I find myself not getting as overly attached or or bound up with the you know with the day to day activities um, because I'm not I I know that there's a bigger picture I know there's more going on here than just 
my little interpretation of, of whatever may be stressing me out. Well, that's a good point. I, I often uh, say, and I have a, um, in fact, uh, uh, Karen and I formed a, a, a company, a group called All Is Well, because All Is Well really says it all. You know, that is uh, in, the, in the book Proof of Heaven. That's what I said when I first came back to this world, even though I don't even remember saying that because my brain was still so wrecked at the time. But that's what people around me told me I said when I came back. But all is well is another way of seeing that this is soul school and that our higher soul, we can turn it over to our higher soul, which I do daily uh, with my meditative practice. And this is something that I can highly recommend to other people. Going within is a, a very powerful way to come to know all of these truths long before you leave your physical body. This is why... Uh, I've done all the work over the last seven years in helping my life partner, Karen Newell, uh, and her company, Sacred Acoustics, uh, to come up with various differential sound frequency tones to be used to help people get into deep transcendental conscious states of awareness to come to this kind of knowing and guidance and understanding uh, in terms of living their lives. Because first and foremost, the lessons of near-death experiences are not there just to give us comfort about the presence of an afterlife, but they're really there to help guide us through living these lives in our physical bodies uh, on this earth. This is really the important work that we're here to do. Uh, and another important thing to point out about my journey is it showed me very clearly that the only way to make sense of the eternity of consciousness and the fact that uh, the brain is not a producer of consciousness but more of a prison and that when we die, our consciousness is liberated from that, is to realize that reincarnation is a crucial part of the picture. You cannot make sense of this if you subscribe to my pre-coma religious views from my Christian upbringing of one incarnation, then eternal heaven or hell. That makes no <laughs> sense at all. Uh, reincarnation is a crucial part of this. And of course, I didn't realize before my coma, but, for example, the scientific study of reincarnation in the form of more than 2,500 cases of, uh, at the University of Virginia, their uh, Division of Perceptual Studies, um, more than 2,500 cases of past life memories in children where the most ready explanation is of reincarnation. So, uh, you know, it's not a question of whether or not you want to believe in reincarnation. It's simply a question of how do we accept and adapt to the uh, clear presence of reincarnation as being involved in so many uh, memories of children uh, for lives that they've lived before. And, uh, of course, reincarnation is part of most major religious systems, although, interestingly enough, it was written out of Christianity, but only late in the game. The original uh, Christianity, as Dr. Herbert Purrier has so beautifully put it in his book, Why Jesus Taught Reincarnation, uh, the original Christianity was very much uh, uh, comfortable with the notion of reincarnation. But it's, it's really the only way to make sense of so much of this. I, I saw coming back in my journey, the, the only way to make sense of that infinitely loving, infinitely powerful, and infinitely knowing God uh, that I encountered in the, the deepest realms, that God that I called Om, uh, that God that, that loves all beings, you know, is not any part of any orthodox uh, religion, but loves all of creation. Uh, that was really, uh, to me, a tremendous kind of awakening and understanding. Uh, and reincarnation is an absolutely crucial part of it. 
so this is all about a much expanded view of the universe compared to my very limited uh, understanding before my home experience, but also before I began to study near-death experiences, shared death experiences, after-death communications, past life memories in children, indicative reincarnation, and all of the other evidence of non-local consciousness uh, that, for example, are so well presented in the scientific books, Irreducible Mind Toward a Psychology for the 21st Century, and also a book from the same group at University of Virginia, um, Ed Kelly and others, Bruce Grayson, uh, Jim Tucker. Uh, and that second book from them is called Beyond Physicalism, uh, Toward a Reconciliation of Science and Spirituality. Both of those are very deeply scientific books about this awakening in the scientific world around the phenomenon of consciousness, all towards the fact that we really are spiritual beings living in a spiritual universe. Mm. This may seem like a very obvious question, but has your experience given you the sense of much more creative influence on your life and reality? Well, I would say yes. Uh, you know, in fact, I, I might have been a bit seduced before. Excuse me. A uh, bit seduced before uh, to kind of believing, uh, you know, something about the, the limitations of just that birth-to-death incarnation. But yes, you're right. This much broader view of reality, uh, of trying to address the measurement paradox in quantum physics and trying to move beyond the impossible problem of consciousness from a materialist perspective. Uh, yes, it uh, shows tremendous possibilities for free will and for manifestation of the world of our dreams. Uh, you, you know, it turns out that one of the cornerstone beliefs of that materialist science that believes that the brain creates consciousness, that it's all just chemical reactions uh, in the substance of the brain, is that we have no free will at all. In fact, such scientists scoff at the notion of human free will, uh, and they pretend that we're all simply victims of our DNA, of, of chemical reactions, and of, of basically a Newtonian predictability and determinism to the universe. And quantum physics, of course, is what opens the door to a much richer, more profound world where consciousness is fundamental, that in fact sentient beings do have free will and can manifest that very robustly in this world. And I'd say that's what this awakening is really all about. Um, we are no longer to simply blindly follow kind of a reactive pattern uh, slave to our ego, but we can open up to far grander possibilities of manifestation as sentient beings that are interconnected with each other as one, uh, one mind, and also connected with the divine creative source of this universe. Uh, so this much bigger view of who we are and our connectedness and our potential uh, abilities to influence unfolding reality is tremendous compared to my most limited uh, prior materialist worldview. Mm, that was an incredible answer. Yeah, I like the the slipping in the word slavery because it's, I mean, I, I, I like the synchronicity because as you're talking, in my mind, the one word that kept coming up was slavery and just in a sense of like determinism or any of these these imposed upon conditions of reality that we just accept as a, as a collective, we just accept as the way it is, to me it just feels like, wow, um, it feels a little enslaving. Like I don't have any creative influence. I don't have any creative control on my reality. It sounds a little like slavery in a way. Well, you know, uh, sometimes uh, 
uh, in, in my talks, I've, I've put out the analogy um, because a lot of this work, as I mentioned, is being done at University of Virginia, uh, like that Division of Perceptual Studies, Ed Kelly and that group that have been so important in putting out scientific books to really liberate our modern thinking from the shackles of scientific materialism. Uh, and I often use the analogy, it's kind of like the 250 uh, year or quarter millennium echo of the work of Thomas Jefferson. You know, the third president of the United States, he's the, the man who selected the University of Virginia here in Charlottesville. He selected the site. And I think his spirit is still alive and well uh, because his work back uh, 250 years ago with uh, George Washington and James Madison, James Adams, Ben Franklin and others was to liberate uh, the soul from the tyranny of political oppression. Mm. And that's what they did. And I believe that the work now being reflected 250 years later with all the focus in Charlottesville, the fact that uh, Raymond Moody spent a lot of time here. He's the one who wrote the book Life After Life uh, in 1975 that started the whole NDE revolution. Uh, he went to uh, UVA as an undergrad and uh, also that uh, many other workers have come through here like Elizabeth Cooper-Ross lived in this part of Virginia. But I often say that really uh, the people involved with UVA and Thomas Jefferson's spirit in the Charlottesville area now are much more part of liberating the human soul from the oppression of our materialist paradigm of scientific materialism that is so restrictive and confining and just absolutely false, has nothing whatsoever to offer up about the nature of consciousness itself. That's going to take a much bigger worldview that I think is emerging even now. Mm. Fantastic. I um I want to I want to discuss your new book, The Mindful Universe. I love the title and it like that title for me invokes a lot of different I mean a lot of what we've already talked about, the fact that we live in a mindful universe opposed to uh, like a dead universe. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it it's a very good point. I mean it uh it brings up what uh, really emerges from uh, the world of quantum physics at the deepest levels of understanding uh, is this implication that there is one consciousness. I mean, this is something uh, that uh, Schrodinger, Erwin Schrodinger, uh, mm. harped on tremendously. He wrote a beautiful book called What is Life? Uh, and in that, he also has a discussion of what is consciousness. Uh, but it's a very profound issue that arises out of the deepest uh, thinking about the nature of quantum physics and what it's trying to tell us. But it points out very clearly that we are interconnected as one mind. Uh, these uh, boundaries of self are very much illusory. They're there to support certain superficial aspects of our existence. But when we want to get much deeper into the reason for our existence and kind of the very nature of our existence, uh, get to deeper uh, answers to those questions, what we come to realize is there really is one mind and that that one mind is allowed in through the filtering mechanism of the brain, but that we're all connected. So that things like telepathy, remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, past life memories in children and addictive reincarnation, near-death experiences, shared death experiences, which are the same as near-death, but they happen in perfectly healthy bystander souls. All of these phenomena of non-local consciousness are very real. Uh, and the question is, how do they work? 
Mm. How does all of this work? How does consciousness work that it can be so widespread and universal, that we can all be so entangled, that we can dream other people's dreams and we can have telepathy? Um, you know, these are all profound human capabilities that only now are beginning to uh, come back to the fore and be rediscovered. Uh, they've kind of gone into hiding over a century of kind of the wild heyday of scientific materialism. They kept trying to pretend that such uh, uh, non-local consciousness was not true. And yet the, the evidence is there. The empirical evidence supporting the reality of these things is very true. Uh, and we're now finally overthrowing the simplistic dismissal that comes from the bully pulpit of the materialist scientific <laughs> media arm uh, in trying to bury all this, bury all this truth and understanding. Mm. And uh, really, there's no way out from materialist science. There's no way we're going to get to any solution of the interpretation of quantum physics without acknowledging the deeper reality of the fundamental existence of consciousness. And uh, they can keep struggling all they want. Uh, but it's one of the reasons why we've spent 115 years since the advent of quantum physics and still have no idea how to interpret uh, the results of the experiments because they are very bizarre if you force it into a materialist paradigm. But if you open up to a much grander paradigm where consciousness is fundamental – all of that deep mystery of the hard problem of consciousness and the measurement paradox in quantum physics begin to dissipate into a much uh, more ready sense of understanding and awareness. And this is what Karen Duell and I will be covering in our next book, which is uh, the mindful universe, uh, uh, living in a mindful universe, uh, neurosurgeon's journey into the heart of consciousness. And you're right, it's really about kind of the nature of everything, the nature of reality, the mind-brain relationship, how each and every one of us has always been uh, uh, completely within our own uh, conscious awareness of the universe and not experiencing the universe directly. Uh, and all of this is a very crucial kind of mind-opening adventure to get to deeper levels of reality. But it has to do with the fact that the universe is self-aware and that each and every sentient being uh, is like a little point of light of that self-awareness. And so, in fact, we are all participating through this soul school of lear learning and teaching uh, and living together and learning the lessons of love and compassion and forgiveness. Uh, all of this soul school is progressing, and it's the evolution of consciousness itself. That's why, what we are all part of. So in, in a very deep, real sense, it is a mindful universe, and our self-awareness is the very element of that mindfulness of the universe for its own existence. But it's all a much bigger picture that has tremendous purpose and meaning to it uh, as we grow and evolve together. Mm. That's amazing. That's amazing. The book sounds incredible. Your book, Proof of Heaven, your very first book, is, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a masterpiece, and it really has helped bring in, it's helped usher in, you know, this whole conversation, really, but just your experience is just so, um, I don't even know the word for it. I can only use the word like synchronicity because that's what <laughs> that's what kept coming up in my my awareness as I'm as I'm hearing you speak is just like the power of the unpredictable events in life. And it it actually 
would, it, you know, any critical thinker that would think about the nature of serendipity or synchronicity um, would have to come to the conclusion that it is a mindful universe and there is something going on behind the veil that is kind of like holding everything together that's that's allowing these what we call miracles and magic to happen in people's lives literally all the time. I think that is very much the case. And in fact, synchronicities uh, are really the fundamental clue that there is a much higher ordering to this universe uh, that is there in this uh, one mind that organizes so much of our lives. Uh, and that's why it's so important to see the synchronicities in our life, mm -hmm. those things that we think, well, isn't that an interesting coincidence uh, that certain <laughs> events that seem to be so related at a higher level uh, seem to happen together and support each other. And that is an important thing for us to focus on because it really gives us an idea of that higher ordering and how we are all part of that. Uh, in essence, that message that I received on the butterfly wing in my beautiful journey, you are deeply loved and cherished forever. You will be taken care of, is a lovely message to all of us. Uh, this is very much a, a process of gaining trust Trust that the universe will take care of us. Trust that there is a benevolent force. Uh, that was uh, probably the most crucial question to be asked by all of humanity, according to Albert Einstein towards the end of his life, is, is there a, a benevolent force in this universe? And I would answer in the affirmative, absolutely, there is a beautiful force, an infinitely loving God is what I call that force. Mm. Uh, but of course, so people can use whatever their words they want. And this is not that infinitely loving God that I had grown up with in my Methodist upbringing, because uh, there are some differences here. For one thing, this God is far more real, far more personal, and part of each and every one of us. Uh, also, absolutely non-judgmental. Mm. The judgment comes from our own selves and that life review and from our higher souls. The judgment doesn't come from that perfect, infinitely knowing and loving God. Uh, and that, of course, is quite different from my religious upbringing, yet that is also a truth that emerges again and again from near-death experiencers by the thousands out there who tell kind of a similar story. So uh, it's really a shift in understanding of that force, but also realizing that it's far more real than I ever could have considered before. Uh, and this, of course, is something born borne out by the empirical evidence of so many other near-death experiencers out there by the hundreds of thousands reporting over the Internet and by uh, various uh, polls and uh, such, we can figure that there are probably at least 15 million near-death experiences in the United States alone. So there's a tremendous population out there that are trying to shift this world up. And uh, we need to move our, our thinking, whether it's uh, you know our uh, dogmatic, orthodox, religious thinking, which in many cases can be quite outmoded, certainly any of the religious thinking that tends to point towards a separation of us, uh, that one is better than the other, or uh, that in some way we must do battle with each other in, in our belief systems. I mean, that's the most uh, ridiculous uh, kidnapping of the message of the prophets and the mystics over time which from my point of view is very much a message of unity and oneness and of love, compassion, acceptance, and forgiveness. That's what I believe we, we were taught by the original messengers. And yet there's so many in humanity that try and hijack that message, I guess for purposes of controlling other humans, 
Uh, but that's where we need to really focus on those aspects of religion that uh, hark to our oneness, to our relatedness, to our spirituality as spiritual beings, our connectedness as one with the divine, and the fact that we can manifest love and acceptance and forgiveness for all of our fellow beings in this world. Those aspects of religion, uh, I believe, should be uh, harped on and, and focused on and strengthened. Mm -hmm. That is an incredible, incredible uh, note to conclude on. I, whew, this was an incredible conversation. I'm just, I feel the butterflies moving through me right now, and just the the, oh. le the level of truth and the just the the, yeah, just everything that that your journey has brought to the forefront uh, to benefit humanity, to benefit all of our lives. I'm I'm so grateful. And I would like to use this opportunity to um, have you share with us uh, where everybody can find more about your work, your books, and your upcoming book. Okay, well, you can uh, look for the books, uh, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. Then the second book, uh, The Map of Heaven, uh, How Science, Religion, and Ordinary People Are Proving the Afterlife. Um, and then there's the up upcoming book, which comes out in October 17th of 2017. And that book is called Living in a Mindful Universe, um, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness. That's by Evan Alexander, MD, and my life partner, Karen Newell. People can visit me at ebenalexander.com. That's E-B is in Baker, E-N, alexander.com. Um, and I'm in the process now of a website uh, hopefully over the next month or two. Uh, and then also visit sacredacoustics.com to learn more about going within, about meditation, about uh, using differential sound frequency brain entrainment to get into very deep transcendental states of conscious awareness. That's a technique I use daily, uh, meditating an hour or two daily, have been for the last seven years, all in going back to my uh, experience and uh, developing a much richer and more robust relationship with the, with the beings and guides and that infinite healing power of love that I encountered there. And that's something that I've repeatedly done and strengthened through my work with sacredacoustics.com. So people who are interested in doing that can go to that website, download the free 20-minute arm, listen to headphones, um, and participate in this great uh, coming uh, awakening of consciousness uh, among humanity. Mm. Whew, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today for this this incredible conversation. Well, Ronnie, thanks so much for having me. It's great talking with you, and maybe we can talk again uh, in the fall when the book comes out. Uh, I would love that. That would be an honor. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ronnie. You have a great day, and uh, my best to all of your audience. Thank you so much.